My travels last year took me to a town where a friend of mine lives who I had not seen or spoken to in a number of years. So I decided to reach out to him and I called him and he said, sure, come on by my office and we can spend some time around lunch chatting. So I went by his office and we sat, I sat down there and the usual chit chat that goes on when you haven't seen someone in, in a while, the kind of informal uh, getting reacquainted. But then I asked him, I said, so what has been going on in your life? And he said, well, let me tell you. And then the next words out of his mouth were quite shocking to me. He said, I am half Iranian. That's an interesting way to start a story, right? Let me tell you, I am half Iranian. Now, it shocked me a little bit because I've known this gentleman for uh, 15 or more years, and I know that he is from Kansas, small town, middle of nowhere, Kansas, and I don't know that there's any Iranians that live in his uh, territory there. He said, my daughter got me one of these genealogy kits for Christmas last year. And he said, this past Christmas, and he said, so I spit in the tube and sent it in. And then he said, and then I forgot about it. About six weeks later, I get this report back. And he said, I'm, I'm just browsing through it, not, not really thinking anything about it, just browsing through it. And there I see this, this thing that says my, my demographic, my genetic, genetic makeup is that I am half Iranian, half Iranian. By the way, neither his mom or dad are Iranian, which he points out to me in that moment. Well, he just asked his mom about it, and he says, Mom, I got this thing. He asked his sister about it. I got this thing. And they say, we, we don't know anything about this. And so he begins to dig into it a little bit more. And as you dig into it, I guess on some of these uh, genealogy things, you can find other people that have share similar DNA to you. And this can be either very cool or very invasive and scary. But he found some people that had some similar DNA to him that had also gone through some of these genealogy sites. And there was one in particular that stood out to him because this person had so much DNA similar to his that it listed him in this genealogical thing as a sibling. But the person is not his sibling. He knows all his siblings, all his sisters. But he decides to reach out to that lady that lives all the way across uh, the country. And he says, hey, I did this thing, and, and it looks like you did it as well, and it says we are related. In fact, it says I might be your brother. At first, the lady is, is of course, uh, you know, appropriately skeptical, and Leary, because she has brothers and she knows all her brothers and all her sisters. So my friend sends her a picture of himself, this lady that shares so much of his DNA. And then she sends a picture back to him, but it is not of herself, it is of her father. And at that point, my friend holds up his phone and shows me a picture of this man who looks exactly like my friend many years ago. My friend from Kansas discovered last year that his genealogy didn't exist solely in Kansas. Half his family is from Iran. So the story is, just so you're not sitting there in the dark, my friend's parents were separated for a period of time. My friend's mom, in that interlude, met a young man from Iran who was in Kansas 
on a university visa or a school visa. The separation ended. My friend's parents got back together. The young man moved to California, finished his university at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, and then went back to Iran where he was a wealthy landowner, then had to flee during the revolution and that in, uh, back in the early, or late 70s, early 80s, the Iran revolution, and ended up in California. My friend, on the other hand, was born to two Kansans, none the wiser, until he explored his genealogy one year as a Christmas gift from his daughter. My friend would tell you that you can learn a lot in the study of genealogy. And hopefully we can learn a few things from the seemingly random text. Delany, thank you. Anyone who offers to read the scripture, I'm sure it would open up to that and say, really, this is what I have to read? <laughs> the scripture today, which is found in Exodus chapter 6, uh, verses 14 through uh, 27. You can go ahead there and follow along, although I'm sure you already have it all memorized and, and set out. Next week, by the way, we'll be looking at the plagues, and Pastor Tim Soper will be preaching, and I'm sure you'll be blessed, and you'll want to come back to that. If you've ever wondered, you know, what are the plagues? They just seem very harsh. What do, what do these communicate to us? I'm sure you'll want to be back here for that. But we're looking today at this genealogy in Exodus chapter 6, verses 14 through 27. And I have a confession to make, and maybe it is a confession that some of you can relate to. I've read through the entire Bible. That is not the confession this is the confession. But since I've read through the entire Bible, when I go back to read through the Bible from time to time or read through a particular book, I don't always read with intentionality the genealogies once again. Anyone relate to this? I kind of consider the genealogies, thank you for some of your honesty, I kind of consider the genealogies one of those texts, once read, always read, you know? Uh, I, I, I relate to it like how you relate to some movies. Like, for instance, one of my favorite movies is The Sound of Music, which our school is doing the, the, the play production, the musical production of that this year, Spencerville Academy. But, but The Sound of Music is one of my, my favorite musicals. And I would tell you if we were just in general conversation, oh, I've seen this movie hundreds of times. Well, the truth is I probably haven't seen all of it hundreds of times. I, I, I know the movie so well that, that, you know, there's that part where Maria uh, goes back to the abbey and she's moping there in the abbey and, you know, uh, Reverend Mother Maria, whatever her name is, she, she sings a song and, you know, I'm sure it's beautiful, but I don't, it's not really my thing, you know. I, I fast forward, skip all that part and I go straight to where she's coming back and all the kids are sad, and then all of a sudden everyone's happy again. You know, I like that. I, I get to the meat of it. In fact, sometimes I don't even watch any of the talking parts, and I just jump from song to song. Christina hates watching the sound of music with me, and I just jump from song to song and sing along with the songs. Um, I'll do it for you sometime if you like. Uh, don't sit by me when I'm at the musical for the school. Um, I say I've seen it hundreds of times, but I've only really seen it probably fully through a few times. That's probably how we treat the genealogies in the Bible at times, if we're honest. We read the Bible, but we get to that day's reading and we kind of just go, a lot of names, a lot of names, a lot of names. Okay, moving on. Here's an interesting scripture, though. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 
Many of you know this. All scripture, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed. And then there's this interesting word, and is useful. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful, the Bible says, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. This must mean the genealogies as well. And in the Old Testament especially, we see evidence that God really valued inspiring lists of names. All over the Old Testament, we see it. Just in the first book, Genesis, that we looked at a couple years ago, in the book of Genesis alone, we have the account of Adam's line in chapter 5, the table of nations in chapter 10, the descendants of Jacob and Esau in chapter 35 and 36, and then the book of Exodus, which we are studying now, begins with a list of names. The book of Numbers, of course, is chock full of, of genealogies as well as First Chronicles. Those are always the books that we, again, we come to on our reading list and we go, I got to slog through. You might not say it like this. You might be more holy than I am, but, but we sometimes think I've got to slog through this. But I would say to you that probably if we would slow down, and that's what we're going to do today for just a few minutes, we would see that there is actually a lot we can learn from genealogies and what we're going to learn from the genealogy in Exodus chapter 6 today. First, genealogies, they mark history. In fact, they affirm oftentimes the history of God as he lays it out. God in the book of Genesis prophesied to Abraham that his people, the Jewish people, the Israel people, would would be in a foreign land for more than 400 years. This becomes evident in this genealogy that we read today. As as Delany read, it, it, it lists the names of individuals and then it lists years, specific years. In fact, it says this is the heads of their families, but if you're familiar with the scriptures, you recognize that actually that's not all the heads of Israel. They actually only have in there Reuben and Simeon and Levi. They're only acknowledged three of the heads of the families because they're simply establishing the the historical timeline. They're establishing the order and the historical timeline, and they give specific ages, which affirms the time that the Israelites were in Egypt. It affirms the historical record. So God uses genealogies to to self-prove the records of Scripture. We also see in these genealogies, see the significance of individuals. Another thing we, we learn from the genealogies is the significance of individuals that we know really nothing about. Francis Schaeffer wrote, there are no little people who are connected to God. There are no little people. Some of the names in the genealogy you'll recognize, but, but many of the names that Delany just read, we don't know them. In fact, we don't even know how to say them. You might have chuckled a little bit when Delany had to read, but you, you wouldn't want to be the one up here reading them, right? We don't even know, not only do we not know these names, we don't even know how to say them. They're not, they're not familiar to us. But, but what the genealogy shows is that God knew these people. He knew them intimately, and and through his divine inspiration, he saw it important for them to be a part of, of, of the history of his divine plan that is laid out in Scripture. 
They are not known in history for being anything other than a, a placeholder in a list, but, but they were people that were made in the image of God, just like Moses and Aaron. They were a people that played a role in God's divine history, just like Moses and Aaron, and just like you and me. Just like you and I, they were sinners and strugglers and individuals that were in need of God's grace and Jesus' sacrifice, just like us. We read through these names quickly, but, but they were a, a purposeful individual, in the scope of God's history. And just like people may not know us or, or, or be familiar with us, they played a role somewhere in history, maybe unknown to everyone else, but, but, but God had a role for them, just like God has a role for each one of you and each one of us. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19 states this, the Lord knows those who are his. You may not know all of God's people, you may not know all the people even in this church, but God knows his people, he knows them intimately. A friend of mine is a pastor in a small country church in California. If I said his name, I don't think any of you would know who he is. I don't think any of you would, would, would be familiar with him. I haven't seen him write any articles. I haven't seen any YouTube videos of him. He's a small church country preacher. But if I said the name of his uncle, a great majority of you would know who his uncle is. And if you watch TV or you watch movies on a regular basis, then, then even more of you would be familiar with who I said he is. No one knows this small country preacher like they know, people don't know the small country preacher like they would know the actor. But the genealogies remind us that both of them are known equally to the Lord. And they both are important and significant to God. If you're someone that feels like, man, I, I just don't have a role, I don't have a part, I, insignificant, what do I do? God, God wants to remind you that, that, that you have a specific purpose in this world and God knows who you are and God knows your name. The genealogies teach us history, but the genealogies also teach us the value of even the everyday individuals. The genealogies also teach us something about the dependence that certain families had on the Lord. They, they teach us about characteristics of the Lord. They teach us about how the people relied upon the Lord. In many of our modern cultures, I'll speak at least for my culture for the most part, we're not so worried about what a name means. There are cultures, obviously, where names still mean something, but... but we named Dayton. Dayton had significance because that's where I accepted Jesus. And so whenever I think of Dayton, I think of where I accepted Jesus in Dayton, Ohio. Landon, we chose Landon because Christina liked the name and because it kind of rhymed with Dayton, which we regret to this day because now they're all mixed up. And then we chose Levi because they wouldn't let us leave the hospital until we chose a name. That's, that's it. People are like, oh, you named him because you're a pastor after the priest. No. No. We were going to call him Fisher, but then my sister called her, started calling him Fish. And one person came by to visit us and said, oh, he's like his dad. He'll be a Fisher of men. And Christina's like, done. He's not going to be called Fisher. I'm not going to put that pressure on this child. So we were just sitting there, and I tweeted out, does anyone have a good name? Ty Gibson wrote me and said, hey, I like Ty. And we said, okay, let's put down Ty. And as we're about to leave... Christine goes, I don't know. We already have a Y in the family. Wilder, we call him Y. Let's not have Ty, Ty and Y. I was like, now we're stuck here again, Christina. 
And so for another hour, we sat there until we just said Levi, and we wrote it down. What does Levi mean to you? It means we wanted to get out of the hospital. (laughs) But names meant something to these people. And so as you study the genealogies, you, you, you see the value of these names. Shaul means prayers answered. Prayers answered. What, what was that mother? Was, there, was that mother and father, were they praying for that child? Maybe that child was sick when it was born and they prayed over that and then God restored it. It means prayers answered. Eliezer, God has aided. Elzaphan, God has treasured. Elkanah, God has created. All these names describe something that was of value, that communicated some value, some characteristic of God. They looked at their child, just as we talked about with Amelia, that this is a gift from God. They looked at their child and they said, this is a gift from God. This is, this is God's answer. This is God who has aided us. This is God's treasure. This is whom God has created. Created value. Jochebed, the mother of Moses and Aaron, her name means God's glory. We may miss, by not studying the genealogies, the testimonies of, of, our, of our Savior's attributes and his characteristics that appear just in the names alone of these individuals. If we brush through quickly, we don't see those. I also appreciate not only the historical things that are, that are found in the genealogies or, or, or that we see that God values people, even the ones that we don't know, or, or the attributes that they teach us. But I also appreciate that the, the genealogies are so very honest. They're so honest. The honesty found in the biblical genealogies. I was acquainted with someone years ago, and someone came up to me and said, hey, you know that person that you work with, they're, uh, they have some family connection to Bonnie and Clyde. Any of you heard of Bonnie and Clyde? And so I went to this person. I said, hey, I hear you're related to Bonnie and Clyde. You never said anything about it. And they said, yeah, we don't really talk about it much in our family. I said, well, why not? That's so cool. And they said, really? They're murderers. <laughs> and not really having thought about it a lot other than Warren Beatty, I didn't really, it didn't register in my brain. I just thought, cool movie. And, and, I, and I realized, like, and then we began to talk about it. Hey, they've killed they killed dozens of people, or a dozen people or more. They did all these bad things, so it's not really something we, we go around telling people, hey, we're related to, it's, it's a shameful thing for this family. It's shameful. I met many people who say, hey, I'm a descendant of, and then they name someone famous or someone that they think is, is great or cool. No one ever says, hey, I'm related to Hitler. I mean, it's true. Have you ever, I mean, no one goes like, hey, that's me. I'm related to Hitler. In fact, Hitler's five remaining family members, they have all committed to one another to have no other children so that the bloodline connected to Hitler will completely die. They said the burden that was on us all our lives, we want this to be no more. They don't want to be associated with him anymore. A few years back, They were trying to figure out where to give royalties for the book Mein Kampf, and they offered it to these five relatives. Two of them live in Austria, and three of them live in Long Island. And they said, we want nothing to do with it. They they were embarrassed that they had been discovered as family members of of Hitler. No one goes around and says, hey, I'm I'm related to Hitler. We, We, as society, typically hide the ugly parts of our bloodline, and we only want to expose the shiniest and brightest parts of our bloodline. That's not the case with the Bible. The Bible shows it all. At least three individuals that 
that are in this genealogy that we've looked at, Korah and Nadab and Abihu, they do not show well in the rest of Scripture. They do not show well in, in, in the rest of the story. When I read the, the genealogies of the Bible, I don't see a whitewashed history. I see a family tree full of skeletons and full of struggles. You know what? And that gives me hope. You know why? Because I have a family tree that's, that, that has stories of abandonment and mental health issues and, and divorce and adultery and jail and drugs and abuse and all kinds of things in my family history. Maybe some of you have, have, have different family histories with more kosher and acceptable sins like pride and impatience and selfishness and arrogance. But the biblical genealogies remind us that every family, by the way, read Jesus's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Every family, including our Savior, has a, a broken family history, a marred family history. Families are full of trials. Families all have junk that they have to overcome. It's not exclusive to you. It's not exclusive to me. Every family history is in need of the redemption of Jesus. Every single one. And when I read the genealogies and I read about these great heroes, Moses and Aaron, and I read their, their history, I realize, you know what? Their family history is in need of redemption as well. And this also causes me or invites me to pause and realize this. That maybe because my family is broken, because all the families I read about in the Bible are broken, Maybe that means your family's broken as well. And maybe it'll help us to be more sympathetic with one another. Maybe it will help us to, to recognize that, that, you know, that person who seems a little bit aloof and distant, and we say, man, they're, they're really not very friendly. Maybe we recognize that the family they came from, maybe that's, they were raised in a home in which they didn't know how to, they didn't have that warmth. And we'll be a little more patient. That, 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 that person that's a little bit rough around the edges. That grace required, GRI, a grace required individual. You have those in your life? Maybe some of those people will say, well, man, if we knew their family history, what's been passed on to them through the generations, we'll be a little more gracious and, and gentle with them. These are things that I think about when I pause and don't just rush through the genealogies. Moses and Aaron, great men, great leaders. But man, they have brokenness in their family too. And some of their mistakes, if you look back at the history, you see this was a, a family trait that's passed on from generation to generation. More patience and more acceptance, that's what the genealogies teach us. And finally, and specifically about the genealogy in today's scripture, there is another thing that, that my attention is drawn to. This genealogy, while it is labeled in almost all of our Bibles, the genealogy of Moses and Aaron, the vast emphasis of the genealogy is about Aaron and his family. It's not actually about Moses. The majority of this genealogy is about Aaron and his family. A couple things I think about when I, when I look at that emphasis. 
First, what I think about is that even though Moses has been the focal point of the first five chapters, he's been the focal point of the first five chapters of of Exodus, and we see the amazing story after amazing story, what I see in this genealogy is that Aaron is just as called as Moses. Aaron wasn't drawn out of a Nile. Aaron wasn't raised in the palaces of Egypt. Aaron wasn't, wasn't, didn't kill a man and have this amazing turnaround back to God. Aaron didn't wander for 40 years in the desert trying to figure out who he was. Aaron wasn't called out of the, out of the bush from an invisible voice. But Aaron's calling is just as much as a miracle from God as Moses's is. And Aaron's calling is just as important as Moses's is. As Moses was going through all these things, God was leading day by day in the life of Aaron to prepare him and to to have him ready for his calling. In the late 90s, there were a bunch of prayer conferences, uh, the prayer conference movement kind of going around various academies, Adventist academies around this country. And my wife was a part of it in the West Coast and I was a part of it out here in the East and neither of us knew about each other at the time. But, but I had the privilege of, of going and being a part of several of those gatherings. And one of the things we would focus on at those events is, is, is how to share Jesus with others. And we would always tell these, these students, these, these uh, students at these academies, we would say one of the best ways to share Jesus with someone else is to share with them your story. To share with them how how Jesus has led you or how Jesus has called you or how Jesus has blessed you in your life. And I would hear so many kids say, I don't have a story. Nothing interesting has happened in my life. What they meant by this was, I never did drugs, I was never in jail, I was never rescued out of the Nile in a basket. That's what what they're saying there. That, that nothing crazy happened to me, so, so I don't really have a calling to tell. I don't really have a story to tell. The thought that the only way to have a testimony is to have some crazy conversion, we see from this story about Aaron's calling. Aaron's history reminds us that God's calling is not dependent on our radical story. It's not dependent upon our radical story. In fact, I, my deepest prayer as a father My deepest prayer as a dad is that that my kid's testimony, my three sons' testimony will be early on, we fell in love with Jesus and we followed him ever since. That's the testimony of my heart for my sons. If they want to get up and preach and say, my dad did this, my dad did this, that's fine, but I don't want them to ever get up and say, when I was a kid, I did this. Or I walked away from the Lord and did this. Aaron reminds us that you don't have to have that crazy life story to be called by God. God's calling on Aaron's life is just as much a miracle and just as important. And if you think about it, if you think about it, we know almost nothing about Moses' family. There's only a couple more verses about Moses' family in the Bible. But long after Moses was gone, the direct descendants of Aaron continued to serve faithfully in God's temple. After Moses was gone, they continued to be the priests and the leaders of God's people for generations and beyond. And something else that's tucked in there in the midst of the lesson on Aaron's family is this last beautiful point. This last beautiful point. God, when he inspired the emphasis on Aaron's family line, he puts a hint in of Jesus' saving grace 
If you look at Exodus chapter 6 and verse 23, it's right there. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 23. This small hint of Jesus' saving grace. It reads, Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, and here it is, the daughter of Amminadab and the sister of Nashon. She bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. I say this as a small hint of Jesus' saving grace, because if you flip really quickly to Matthew chapter one, the first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, Beginning in verse one, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now we are looking at Jesus' genealogical, his family tree, his timeline, his bloodline. And in Matthew chapter one and verse one, it says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then in verse four, and it says, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Amminadab, the father also of Aaron's wife. This small little hint, this reminder, this reminder that even in the days of Moses and Aaron, God was working out his plan to send a savior to deliver his people from their sins. Moses and Aaron were going to deliver from Egypt, but God was all the way back then, even back then through Abinadab and and Nashon and that whole family, he was working out a plan to redeem all people from their sins. We can learn a lot from the genealogies of the Bible because all scripture is inspired by God and is useful. All of you have a family tree. You all have a family story. Most of you, I hope, aren't gonna go home and find out that you have some other parent. I'm hoping that's not gonna be your story. But the family tree that we all share is this, that we are all sinners in need of a savior. We are all individuals that need the grace of God, just as Moses and Aaron did. This was Moses and Aaron, the Bible says, who was called to speak to Pharaoh. This was Moses and Aaron, the Bible says, who were the ones who led the children of Israel out of Egypt. This was Moses and Aaron, two men that came from a family very much like ours, struggling, broken, broken, and somewhere along the line, still hoping and trusting in God. This is all of us, sinners in need of a savior to redeem our family tree. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you how in every part of a scripture we can see your marvelous plan at work, how in every part of scripture we can see how you call broken and ordinary people, how in every part of scripture you show us that you value each individual intimately, those that we don't know as well as those that we do know. We thank you, God, how we see in scripture how you've been leading and working towards the salvation of humanity without ceasing. You're never distracted from your mission. Jesus, I pray that you will open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and help us to see your salvific work in every aspect of this book. Help us to see 
that no matter how broken our family is, you can redeem it, Lord. No matter how broken our family is, we are called into the family of God as redeemed children of God. Lord, we thank you for all of Scripture that is breathed out by you and is useful to teach us about Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.